Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to our show today. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we're looking at something that's come, well, right into the headlights, the spotlights of any discussion when we speak about efficiency in organizations. It's true of tribal organizations. It's true of Native enterprises in general. It is true of actually every organization on the planet, it seems, because we're speaking about how communication is changing as we deal with all kinds of challenges in our world today. To help us in this very important dialogue is Clint Padgett. Clint, it is so great to have you with us today. Ah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Clint, you have gotten a lot of interest on this topic. Uh, you generate a lot of interest. A lot of folks are tuning into the messaging that you're giving. You're the CEO of a group called Project Success. Just tell us a little bit about what you folks do. So for almost 40 years, what we do is basically we have a niche, and our niche is we train people on how to manage projects, and then we go help them do it in their situations using their terminology, their verbiage, their unique set of challenges. And then when we leave them, hopefully they can be self, self-sufficient and completely do it on their own. So let's talk to a, a tribal entity. Let's say there's a, a tribe right now and they've been hearing about, wow, you know, energy challenges today. I mean, all kinds of controversies about drilling and fossil fuels. And they're saying, we've got a lot of land on a reservation. We'd like to become self-sufficient with solar power. I mean, it may be an area that you've never dealt with, maybe you have at Project Success, but would they just get on the phone and say, hey, we got this vision. We don't know where to go from here. We don't have any experience. Is that something you'd be involved with or am I totally missing the point? No, usually what happens is we get involved when they're, they, they know what they want to do and they've got the experts available, but they don't know how to build the plan to get it done because each individual expert has their own unique expertise, their area that they know the most about. And so we, we bring the group together, which would have the expertise in that of the land value of the land knowledge of the, the solar power, we get all the entities together, and then we help them build the plan to get it done. Okay. It is so exciting, Clint, to have you on the show. Clint Padgett is the CEO of Project Success. You're also the author of a book that's been generating a lot of interest. In fact, that's how you first came to my attention. I had heard about how teams triumph. Tell us, is that just an extension of what you're doing with Project Success? It is. I have a, my first book was published back in 2009 called The Project Success Method. And that was really about the process itself and the techniques we use when we plan and control projects. But what I found is over time, I was focusing more and more of my attention on the people side of managing projects. How do you manage it in a matrix organization where perhaps the project manager doesn't actually have authority over the people on his or her team? And how do you, can you still be successful in that environment? Because you can't make them do it. So how do you do that? We have to build self-accountability. And one of the ways to build self and mutual accountability is to establish a relationship with the people on the team. And so I found myself focusing more and more on the people side of things. And then my experience in going to college, I'm an electrical engineer by training from Georgia Tech. And one of the things I noticed was even though I worked really hard and I studied a lot, I didn't always get the highest grades in my classes, but 
I was okay with that because the three or four people who got better grades didn't have dates that weekend. So it occurred to me that social skills matter. Mm. Mm-hmm. And the same thing applies in project work. Social skills matter. And and I'll be stereotypical for a second, but I think there's a grain of truth in the stereotype. If my brain is math-based, I'm really comfortable at doing math and solving really hard technical questions. Sometimes that person is not the best at the motivational conversational skills because they'd rather go back to the cubicle and design and this widget or do this card complex thing. But if you manage projects, then you need both sets of skills. You need the technical skills, obviously, but you still need the softer people skills. And that's really what drove me to wrote How Teams Triumph is about the softer people side of managing projects. And I think one of the things that folks throughout Indian country have really valued throughout history are those social relationships. And, you know, very closely knit societies, generally historically among those in Indian country. And yet today we're dealing with a lot of challenges that really seem to be stressing that that human side of things. Can you walk us through that whole dialogue, at least from your perspective, Clint? Absolutely. So I've been doing a lot of research into this topic, talking to a lot of really talented people. I talked to Joseph Granny, who wrote Crucial Conversations. I've talked to Allison Woodbrooks at Harvard Business School, who studies the psychology of conversation. And I think what I look at it is this. When I was researching to write the, the new book that's coming out soon, there was a chapter called Communicate Like a Person, Not an Emoji. And when I was doing the research on that, it turns out that in my five plus decades on this planet, I had the wrong definition for communication. I thought what you and I are doing today is communicating. And it's actually not true. The definition of communication is an exchange or just me telling you something. That's communicating. So therefore, I can communicate through a text message, through an email, through posting on some collaboration tool like Slack or Jira. One-way communication is, in fact, communications. What we want to do instead is have a conversation. And a conversation, by definition, is an oral exchange of ideas. So people ask me all the time, well, Clint, what does it take to be a good conversationalist? And my my pat response is, you need to use your ears more than you use your lips. You must listen at least as much, if not more than you talk. And so one of the other keys is you must be present in the moment. So put your phone down, make eye contact, have the conversation. And it doesn't mean you have to agree with the other person. It simply means you have to recognize they have a point of view that is valid to them. And therefore you have to say, okay, I understand your point of view. I accept that you have that point of view. I'm not agreeing with it, but I am in the present in the moment and I'm opening myself up to hear what you have to say. And I look at the world today and what I think is happening is we have a lot of people yelling at each other and they're closing their ears and you're never going to win that battle. You're never going to be successful in that kind of an environment because more than likely you're closed-minded. You're never going to open yourself up to change. And that, that I think that's where we are today. We have people that have dug their foxholes and they're just yelling at each other back and forth and that's they're not having a conversation. Well, this seems to be a huge problem uh, as far as my vantage point, Clint. And, you know, we can see it in the political world. We can see it in the social environment we're in. But how does that impact the workplace when people come from those differing political, racial, ethnic backgrounds? And in Indian countries, sometimes we may be in settings where there is a more homogenous workforce, but often you look at successful tribal enterprises and they're pulling employees throughout their community, very diverse workforce in many cases. I think it just goes back to you have to be open-minded. You know, I don't have to agree with your opinion. You may vote one way and I vote another, but rather than yelling at each other, how about I just listen to you 
understand your point of view. Don't have to agree with it, but to understand it, understand you have a right to that opinion. And then hopefully you'll listen to my opinion and understand I have my right to my opinion. And we're probably not going to change each other's minds, but at least we understand and respect each other. And as long as you come from a position of respect that we can work together, I don't have to agree with your personal opinions about certain things. We just have to agree to work together in this environment, this workplace, or this project to get it done. And that area we do have to agree on. We have to agree on the same set of objectives, the same set of deliverables, the same ground rules to work together on, but not necessarily have the same point of views on many topics. So, Clint, let's make this as practical as possible. I mean, you've given us a lot of good foundation, but I know to connect the dots for me, for many of my listeners, we say, well, well, show us how this works. Tell us a story. Tell us about, you know, some group or company that you were called in to consult for and, and tell us how this all works together. Sure. So we, there was a certain company in Silicon Valley that makes semiconductor chips, and they had been around since the early 80s and had a lot of actual raw data where they attract their projects over time. And they knew that a lot of the projects that they took on, they ended up abandoning before they came to completion. And unfortunately, by the time they abandoned the project, which is the terminology they call is killed, by the time we killed the project, they'd already used up most, if not all of the budget allocated for it, the resources allocated for it, and most of the time allocated for it and had nothing to show for it. Of the ones that actually went to completion, they were finishing them on average nine months late. So a 14-month project was finishing in 23 months. So clearly, that's a, that's a lot of lateness. We came in and, and within one group, we were able to demonstrate over a couple of year period where that group was actually able to abandon projects early. They realized in the first couple of weeks, we don't have a, we can't get this done. Let's go ahead and abandon it now and reallocate our folks where they can be beneficial and impactful. And then the ones that they did complete, they were completing them only uh, 0.9 months late. So instead of nine months late, 0.9 months late. Wow. So that's 8.1 months of resources that you got back to work on other projects and you're actually able to know which ones you can deliver. So that's an example of how the process actually enables you to be successful. And are you saying this process is largely based on simply, I don't want to minimize the concept by using the word simply, but is based simply on communication? Is that not communication, conversation? It actually, that is part of the secret sauce. There's a couple of ground rules we have, but when you think about our overall process, one of the first steps is we get people together in a room for, let's say, three days on average to plan the project. And we bring them in from all over the world. So we'll fly people from the US to China or vice versa. Everybody comes together. And the reason we do that is twofold. One is we want to plan in a collaborative way. But the other is I need to turn you into a human being that I feel connected to. And not just an email address. And if we're a dispersed organization where we live in different areas of the country or the world, and all I know you as is an email address, I don't really feel accountable to you. But if I could we come together over that three-day period, that's probably three breakfasts, that's probably three lunches, at least one team dinner. We're going to get to know each other in a, in a private setting where I get to know who you are, kind of what your family looks like, what your family life is like. Do you have kids? What do they do? These kind of things. Do I establish you as a human being that I now feel a connection to and an obligation to? So we build that accountability that way. But then in the process over that three days, the first thing we do is have a conversation about what's the scope of the project. And that's important because what we found is if there's 15 people in the room, there's probably 10 or 12 different opinions. But we want to leave the room with one opinion, one decision on what the project is. 
And then, oh, by the way, make sure that matches what our customer actually wants us to go do. That's, and we do that. It's a document, but we do it by having a conversation. And then we take that document and we go into the next phase, which is where we, what are the activities for the project? And now we get back to your earlier example. The solar expert would say, well, these are the steps we need to go through. And then the land expert would say, well, these are the steps we need to permit and et cetera. And then we build a plan using those and they, we do it through, again, through a conversation. So Dr. Rose, what are your activities? And Joanne, what are your activities? And now how do they all interact? So we do it all through a conversation. Well, this is really an inspiring vision. And I can think of many of my listeners, whether they're native, sitting on a tribal council, whether they run a tribal industry, whether they're not native at all. We have many non-native listeners and they're saying, boy, in my workplace, this would be great. But a lot of times I notice, Clint, I'll just be honest with you. Some of the people with the most vision are not in leadership capacity. They're saying, boy, I wish my boss would do this. Do you have any suggestions on how to help something like this permeate an organization when you're not calling the shots? Yeah, it's a lot harder, obviously, to grow this from a grassroots level up. It is much easier implement when you have senior level buy-in and senior level vision at the top. So if you try to grow it from the bottom up, then it's it becomes an education piece. You have to educate someone on why we should do this. And one of the first things you have to overcome is this perception of, wait a minute, you want me to bring everybody together for three days? Do you know how expensive that is? And so you say, okay, well, let me help you with that. That's so You see this as a cost. I see it as an investment. Remember the last project we had that ended up being six months late? What did that cost us? How many, did we lose a client because of that? Did we lose a customer because of that. That was six months of additional time spent working on the project that we shouldn't have had to do that. We've been invested this three days up front. We would have saved those six months. So you have to help them understand it's not a cost, but it's an investment. They're going to recoup a, a multiple of on the back end. And then the next thing to do is try to get a small project that you can be successful because success breeds success. And you see somebody says, well, how in the world did you get that done? And that complex thing, oh, I just use these following techniques and we got it done. And I think it will work on your project as well. And so once you see enough of that groundswell, then the senior leadership will probably buy into it. No, I mean, that is just so great. And Clint, you've mapped out a lot of these strategies in your book. Is that not correct? Yes, absolutely. So can someone get an excerpt? Can someone purchase the book? Is there some easy way to access you and your organization, for example? Yeah, there's several ways. You know, one is obviously the first book is still available on Amazon. You can buy it on Amazon. You can buy the Kindle version or the physical version. The new book comes out probably later this, I think if we're going to pick January 5th as a release date to get out of the whole end of the year, vaccine, non-vaccine, political... Christmas holidays, all that, get out, get that pass, right? Uh, so that'll be available, of course, at all your favorite places. You can go to projectsuccess.com and you can find us there as well. Okay, so projectsuccess.com, that's the single place you want to remember. We'll talk more about Clint's book, but a lot more practical things coming up in the next segment of today's broadcast. Don't miss it. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Clint Patchett staying by. You do the same. We'll be back with more right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, A-I-A-N-L dot org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. 
The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. For 13 and one half years, I was the victim of severe child abuse. I was being beaten, cursed, and deprived of any kind of love and care. It was a big secret. Children are born to be loved, not to be abused. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. I'm Andrew Saul, Commissioner of Social Security. I'm here to warn you about telephone scammers pretending to be government employees. Some of these scammers may say threatening things like you will be arrested if you don't make payments or provide personal information. Do not fall for these tricks. These calls are not from us. Real Social Security employees will never threaten you for information or money. If you receive a call like this, hang up. Never give the caller your personal information, like your Social Security number or bank account, or send money in any form, cash, gift cards, wire transfers, or prepaid debit cards. Report the call to our law enforcement arm, the Office of the Inspector General at oig.ssa.gov. Share this information with your friends and family. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to our broadcast. Clint Padgett is with me. He's the CEO of a corporation that you may be familiar with or you may have just heard about it for the first time. It's called Project Success. They're based in Atlanta, Georgia. I know many of our listeners are in the southeastern United States. We welcome each of you who are tuning in from that part of the country as well as from throughout North America and beyond. Clint, of course, your work is not confined to Atlanta, is it? No, we travel globally to do these projects all over the world. Well, let's talk about uh, some of the challenges that we're facing today. I think as I look at my experience in Indian country, as I've worked with many tribes, very much uh, a lot of hands-on, a lot of personal contact, been on many reservations and many settings, tribally owned facilities. And again, it was typical for us to gather people together and try to develop uh, collaborations in some of the health projects and educational projects I've been involved with. The world's very different, though, today, and so many of those things that we used to sit down in person and discuss are now being done via Zoom, via texts, emails, not that those things weren't part of the equation, but the landscape has changed so much. Is this challenging organizations as far as some of the priorities that you try to help them embrace? I do think it challenges them, but this was actually a problem even when we were face-to-face I mean, even nine, 10 months ago, we were all in an office together. People's natural inclination was to send a message, send an email, shoot a text message over, 
take the shortcut way out rather than walk down the hallway and say, hey, can we talk about this for a moment? It's just exacerbated or compounded by the fact that we don't have the option of walking down the hallway currently. We have to be remote. And I'm not against text messages and emails. I think they have a place. But for me, it's really about they should be adjunct, not the main way we communicate. So is Zoom, is that going to take the place of physical face-to-face? And I would say no. It is certainly better than just simply text because at least I do get to see some facial expressions. You think about in a setting where you're all together in a room, I can, I can be, there may be 30 people in the room, so it's a big room. I can be focused on the right-hand side of the room and out of my peripheral vision, see something in the left and my brain says, hey, look over here. Now, a million years ago, that was a saber-toothed tiger about to attack me. I don't know what it is today, but I know I need to focus over here. In a Zoom call, you see a lot of little squares on the screen. You don't see that. Your peripheral vision doesn't help you with that. Plus, when we're face-to-face, I can't necessarily – I can see you face-to-face cross your arms because you're frustrated. You're taking a defensive posture. With Zoom, all I'll see is the square level of your head, and that's if you don't have your static picture turned on. So there's all these nonverbal cues we don't pick up on electronic ways of communication. Are you looking down at your phone? Are you actually taking notes? Are you doing something completely different? We get all that face-to-face. We don't get electronically. So I do think it's challenging. And I'm also hopeful that everybody says this is the new normal. I don't personally believe that. I think the pendulum often overswings before it comes back to some central position. And so maybe too many people were in the office together and now it's swung the other way. But people, even those who say we're never going to go back to the office, I think that's going to be challenging for them because what we've learned through studies in the past and research is that the people who do work remote and when other people are in the office together, they feel alienated and they feel not as valued. So if we do leave some people working from home because we realize they don't need to come into the office, we can reduce our office space. That's great. But you're still going to have to get them together every now and then to make sure that they feel still are part of the community and they still feel valued. I mean, this is such an important concept and I've heard so many people like you said, saying, well, hey, I'm not going into the office now. I'm getting all my work done. This is, like you said, going to be the new normal. But like you mentioned, we're undervaluing, it seems, these very important social relationships. And I know in Indian country, I don't see that depreciation happening, I don't think, as quickly as it's happening in other sectors. But I think the temptation is is everywhere, isn't it? Yeah, we're social creatures and we like to feel a part of a community and we don't like to feel isolated. I mean, I love my family, but for nine months now, they're about the only people I've talked to. So I'd like to open that up and talk to other people if I can. And I'm I'm very much a touchy-feely person. So I like to shake hands and physical contact, right? And we're not seeing that today. So I do think that's a challenge for some organizations. And I saw an article recently in Fast Company where there's a, I can't remember the name of the real estate company, but it's one of the big ones over in the Netherlands. And they've created what they call a six feet office where everything, when people come back to the office space, all the furniture is at least six feet apart. They've got in the carpet cutouts where you know you have to walk within this narrow pathway. In, at each desk, there's a six foot circle that you know you're not supposed to step within. And I saw that and I thought, is that really the world we're going to go back to is where I only see Dr. DeRose as a pathogen carrying germ delivery vehicle and not a human being? I don't think that's where I want to be. So I'm hopeful that the pendulum doesn't swing back quite that far. and We meet somewhere in the middle. Fair enough. Now, I've heard people, you know, in the past say things like, well, I don't even need to be physically present. That's not for me. I'm not a relational type person. I'm actually working better in this environment. Is there some truth in that? Is there a danger in that? How do you process that? I think that there's a truth in that to some people. You know, 
we were talking offline and I'm an engineer by training, electrical engineer, and it's a stereotype, but it plays, it's got a grain of truth in it. And the stereotype is, as an engineer, I like being in my cubicle, designing complex widgets and solving complex problems. And maybe the verbal skills and the meetings are not something I really want to contribute in or participate in, but we do, we still need that. And even if you are that person, you're going to be sure to cut into yourself short if you don't participate in a collaborative way, because there are things that happen. We collaborate better face-to-face and we just do back and forth emails and virtual because you don't, it takes a lot longer to get something done. What you could do in one conversation takes eight emails, but it's also the serendipitous stuff that happens. You know, one of the things we lose electronically that we can't mimic in real life is the organic conversation that pops up on your way to the coffee machine. You run into your colleague in the hallway and you have a conversation and some problem gets solved that you didn't even know was needed to be solved. Or you make some connection you didn't realize was there. Or you save some time on a different project. Those conversations that just bubble up organically and naturally when you're face-to-face are not going to happen electronically unless you're really proactive and take a lot more effort to make them happen. So I think that those of us who maybe do like to be by ourselves and kind of sheltered and are comfortable in that world, we need to make sure we still have that touch point with humanity to make sure we still feel a part of the community, but also the fact that we do need to collaborate so we're more effective and that these natural organic conversations can happen. Now, there's another topic that I know you have a special interest in, and that is there are some people who are shying away and perhaps even happy not to have those social contacts because they've been in a toxic workplace. And I know as we were speaking off air, you said you have a pretty powerful story about that type of environment. Yeah, early in my career, I was working on a project and we're doing our process and I was really new to the company. So I was just kind of observing. And one of the people I was sitting beside on the project team on the next break said, well, that project's not going to go. The critical path, the set of activities that are driving the end date isn't right. And I said, oh, what's wrong? He says, well, my task is one of those tasks and, and they only gave me three days. And I know for a fact, I need 15 days. And I said, oh, we should go tell the project manager so we can change it. And he said, no, 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 no. He says, listen, I've worked with that person before, and I know for a fact, if I tell them now that I need 15 days, then they're going to make my life miserable for the next 12 months. He said, so what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to be quiet, and then when my task shows up, on day three, I'll announce, oh, by the way, I need 12 more days. So there's actually two people that fall here. One is that team member is at fault for not owning up to it and just taking the beating he doesn't deserve, but taking it. But the project manager is at fault because they've created a toxic environment where the truth is not acceptable. Mm. I want to tell you the truth as a team member on your project, but if you turn around and beat me over the head with that, then I learn and go, okay, well, that won't happen again. So we want to create environments when we work on projects and we have, or just teams anywhere where the truth is acceptable because at the end of the day, I work in the real world and in the real world, if you don't allow the truth, then your project or your endeavor is going to go wrong. And somebody probably knew it and just didn't want to tell you because you caused them pain in the past. Wow, that is sobering. So most people, I would think, that are causing that kind of pain are totally oblivious to it. They're, they don't realize it's there. Is, are there any red flags that someone in a leadership position should be uh, observant of that would clue them in to maybe there's a problem? You can still be a strong-willed individual and have a strong set of principles, but you still have to listen and you still have to be inclusive. So one of the things that we strongly believe in with our process is the person has to be in the room for their name to be assigned. 
You know, you probably have heard people say, I'm afraid to leave the room because when I do, my name gets assigned to everything. Well, our process won't let that happen because I want to create accountability. You're not even going to be accountable to a task you didn't even sign up for. Another one is that only that person can give me the duration because that person and only they know how many projects they're currently working on, whether they can work late this weekend or not work this weekend because of some event in their kid's life. They know the duration better than anybody else. And so only they can give it to me. So kind of the red flag that I didn't mention in the previous story was, they only gave me three days for us as a big red flag. It should have been how many days do you need? And you tell me, and that becomes a duration for which I hold you accountable. But now you feel accountable because you gave that duration to me. So to me, going back to answer your question, the red flags I would look for is the, per, is the project manager or the leader of that team listening. Are they being inclusive? Are they being collaborative? Are they letting the people on the team build their project, their plan? Or are they just simply dictating? No, I mean, that is so insightful. And I think it's, it's a reminder because everybody at some point finds themselves in a role where they're in charge of something, whether you're a grandparent looking out for the grandkids, whether you're an elder who's just respected in, in your community, whether you are a business leader. Clint, uh, we're going to have to step away just briefly, but before we do, we've been talking about just the fact that you're out there, you're available, and even though maybe we can't all invite you over to our homes, you do have some great resources out there. How do we take advantage of some of the stuff you've written, some of the other resources you have? Yep. So you can buy the books we have online at Amazon, or you can go on our website at projectsuccess.com. We have a couple of resources for you to download there that will probably get you started. So projectsuccess.com, single point. Give me the names of the two books we want to keep in mind, the older book and then the new one that's coming out. The first book is called The Project Success Method, and then the new book is called How Teams Triumph, Managing by Commitment. Okay. Projectsuccess.com, jumping off point for both those books and more. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We'll be back with more from Clint Paget, the CEO of Project Success. Don't miss... The next half of the show got a lot more great material. We'll be right back after this. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org or call one eight hundred seven seven five Hope. That's one eight hundred seven seven five four six seven three. The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. The most negative thinking in my childhood was the things said to me. I felt like I was a bag of garbage waiting to go to the dump. Please, moms and dads, put a watch on your mouth as you relate to your children. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. Papa, why can't we telegraph while riding a horse? Son, there ain't no one to blame but Jeffro. He was riding old Betsy the Stallion, tip-tapping away at his telegraph, when blam, ran right into the side of the saloon. Well, if Jeffro can't do it, neither should you. Don't text and drive. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Heard-Garris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Every year, hundreds of teens drown. If your teen hasn't learned to swim yet, it's never too late. Even if your teen is a strong swimmer, make sure to supervise kids of any age. No one should swim alone. 
teach them to enter the water feet first, wear life jackets on a boat, and never use alcohol or drugs on the water. Drowning is preventable. For more, visit HealthyChildren.org. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for youth. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals into your body. And nicotine, which can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping. Because when you talk, they hear you. Learn more at underagedrinking.samsa.gov. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to the second half of our show today. I am Dr. David DeRose. Clint Paget is my guest He's the CEO of Project Success. I've not met anyone, well, at least that I can recall, who said they didn't want to succeed, at least in some domain. I know there's people that want to sabotage things every now and then, but fortunately, most people working in an organization are aiming for success. Clint, folks, uh, if they've been with us from the top of the hour, they've been enjoying your uh, insightful comments, your stories. I know it's not just limited to this dialogue and to your books. You also have your own podcast. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's called The Conversation with Clinton and Paget on Forbes Books Radio. Of course, you can get it at all your normal spots, Apple, Spotify, et cetera. And what we try to focus on there is kind of what we've been talking about on this show, which is the art of conversation. How do you have hard conversations? So we've had guests like Keith Rossi, who wrote Never Eat Alone, four-time New York Times bestseller, Joseph Granny, who wrote Crucial Conversations. We do academics, Dr. Libby Sander, Dr. Allison Wood Brooks about conversation and Zoom fatigue and how environment matters. So we try to get guests that we found we think the listeners will will find interesting, but also get some takeaways about how do you have those hard conversations and what how do we make ourselves better? So if I can remember the name of Clint Paget and the conversation, have I got it? You got it. Okay, well, that's uh, you got that on my radar screen now. I'll be looking forward to taking in some of that. But for those who are getting all excited about your podcast, let's give them a preview. You mentioned in summarizing some of the topics you've covered this concept of Zoom fatigue. A lot of people are Zooming. I've heard all kinds of, well, different designations for that activity. What is Zoom fatigue? So Zoom fatigue is it's actually a physical thing that happens where your anxiety levels go way up, your stress levels go way up. And there's several reasons for that. One is we seem to be on these Zoom calls all day long from different calls. And one of the things they noticed was there's a lot of anxiety because you see yourself on the screen. If you and I were talking in a natural setting, I wouldn't be looking in the mirror seeing myself. So (laughs) I just assume I look good. But when I'm looking at myself on the screen, I think, oh, my hair is messed up or my button's not right. And I'm focusing on that the whole time. And there's also the other part of the technology side where there was nobody talking for 1.2 milliseconds. Is that because I'm frozen or am I muted? I mean, all these things just add to your stress levels. And it ca- so Zoom fatigue actually is a thing. Wow. So any tips on how we prevent it? 
Well, one of the things that I did like on this call is I took my picture off so I couldn't see it. So I just have to assume I look all right and I'll reply on you to tell me I don't. And then the other one is everything doesn't have to be a Zoom call. I've had people who would send me an invite saying, hey, can you and I jump on a Zoom call to talk about something? And I would say, unless you want to share your screen for some reason, let's just jump on a phone call. Let's just talk offline and take that whole piece out of it. So there are alternatives. And the other one is probably don't back yourself up in eight hours worth of Zoom calls if you can possibly avoid it. So you've covered a lot of other important topics, and some of them are very, very relevant, especially to the situation that we find ourselves in today as people, many of them are working remotely. But let's talk a little bit about this uh, this whole dynamic of folks coming together in a workplace with unscripted time to interact and how we recreate that, especially in the current environment. Is there a way to do that if we can't? physically sit down together it will never be as good a substitute but it's the only one the only option we have and it's the best of the options you have to be proactive so in order to mimic that water cooler conversation that would happen naturally or the coffee conversation that happened naturally you actually have to schedule some time one-on-one with people and say hey can we get together and i just i don't want to talk about the project or the company i just want to talk about you how you're doing what your family how you're handling this whole thing how you working from home are you feeling isolated really structure that time where you're being proactive about having those conversations with folks. And I would probably do it in the mixture of Zoom calls so I can make eye contact with you so you can see that I'm in the moment and that I care. And of course, some would just be, hey, I've had six hours of Zoom calls today. Can we just do a phone call? Of of course, let's do that. Uh But I saw an article recently that talked about the fact there are some companies in Silicon Valley that would not exist today if not for a serendipitous meeting at a Starbucks. Okay. I mean, it'll never be a 100% substitute, but I do think we can we can be proactive about doing these things. And some of the things I've seen that were interesting was one is we can have like a virtual breakfast before the big meeting starts. Let's jump on Zoom 20, 30 minutes early. No one person dominates the conversation. We'll just kind of chat amongst ourselves. The reason that's not quite as good is because we can't have a one-off, right? You and I can't tap each other on the shoulder and go over here and talk one-on-one for a minute like you could in a real meeting, mm-hmm. but that's better than nothing. Uh, you could do the same thing for after the meeting is over. I don't want to say virtual happy hour, but something that says after the meeting is over, let's get together and just, you know, grab a cup of coffee, grab your Coca-Cola, whatever. And let's just have another kind of end of the day. What would normally happen in a workplace? You just have to mimic it in a virtual environment, but you have to be proactive about it. So somebody's been uh, engaged this whole conversation. They're saying, Hey, I can relate to this. I'm dealing with it. Maybe they are a tribal council person. Maybe they're involved with running a tribal enterprise Perhaps it's someone who they're native, but they're running a company. They have a lot of native employees. Maybe they're doing a lot of stuff virtually. And they're just a lot of folks really engaged with these topics. Some of them are thinking of going to projectsuccess.com. What are they going to find there? Well, the two things, the two resources that come to mind is one, we have this worry curve primer. And we have this concept called shift the worry curve. And it's about human nature. So that's what I love about my topic is, Human nature is everywhere, whether you're doing projects or not, whether you're collaborating or not, human nature is human nature. And so shift the worry curve goes like this. Basically, if you have a typical project, let's say you're working in a multi-project environment. So a team member probably is working on five or six different projects at the same time. Right. And they get a new project assigned to them, but there's no plan. It's just, hey, here's the new project, you know, get it done with all your other stuff. If the project deadline is 12 months in the future, they're probably not that worried about it because two things. First of all, they just know that they are assigned to the project and they've got 12 months to do it. And they feel pretty comfortable in their skills. 
And what are they, of course, more worried about? The, the other five projects they're already working on, right? And they're going to get to it. They keep thinking to themselves. And what we find is we call that first phase uninformed optimism because they don't know enough to be scared. <laughs> okay. Give me the thumbnail sketch version. Then they move into vague concern. And then they move into the panic phase of the project. Huh. What we're suggesting is even though you have, you're really busy with five projects and this 12-month project gets dumped on you, carve out the time on the front end to plan it because there are things you're going to need to do next week and a week three and a week seven if you want to hit that 12-month deadline. So we talk about shifting the worry curve. And I've got all that documented in what you call the shift the worry curve primer that will walk you through all those steps. And then the other one that's on there is traditional project management sometimes is referred to as waterfall. Hmm. And there's a kind of a new process that people like called agile, which came out of software development. And I've got another educational document that kind of talks about the advantages of each and how the project success method kind of takes the best of both worlds and melds them together. Now, you've really, I think, got a lot of us fascinated by this concept of shifting the worry curve. Do you have any illustrations? I know I think you described it very nicely, but can you think of any stories of people that put some of these principles to work and it really made a big difference for them? Yeah. So basically it's kind of going back to the earlier story I told where we got there and they're finishing nine months late, but that's because they didn't have a, everybody was doing project management in a very ad hoc way. When they get a new project, they say, well, we're going to get to it eventually. And so one of the stories that I have is actually from this same company, the very first guinea pig, if you will, that we picked to run one of our pilot projects, he didn't really want to do it. He said, look, my way works for me, even though it's not the way everybody else does it. It works for me. I don't really want this rigor and this structure, but he, he was kind of forced to. And within three days, he became a huge convert. And the reason was the first thing that happened was in this, this first session, we called a charter session where we we're having the conversation about the project. What happened was the customer was in the room and we were already working against a very aggressive timeline. And the customer says, oh, by the way, I told our external customer that's going to be buying this product. It was going to meet this new standard. And everybody's looking around going, no, 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 that's never going to happen. First of all, that standard hasn't even been finalized yet. And we're struggling to get this done without that standard. And he said, and I was a convert from that moment, he said, because we had a conversation. And at the end of the conversation, we got in writing that this this semiconductor chip did not have to be compliant with that new standard. He said, so that was tick mark number one. He said, the second thing that happened was during that same project, during kind of going back to what we were talking about during a sidebar conversation. Mm. So in, in, in this world, you have test engineers and design engineers, design engineers design the chip and they hand it off to test engineers who tested to try to break it. And you don't want it to be the same person because you have bias. Mm -hmm. So the, they're having a separate conversation. And then the test engineer says to the design engineer, you know, if you change this one thing about your design, we could have saved 30% of our test time. Wow. Now that conversation could have happened any point over the past seven years. They worked together virtually, but did not happen until they were in the room face to face and that organic conversation bubbled up. Wow. You mean, so there was this systemic problem that was plaguing them for seven years that they'd never discussed? All because it was virtual and you were just an email address to me and I wasn't going to take the time from my, my complex analysis of what I was doing to jump on the phone and force a conversation with you. Well, I mean, a lot of this stuff is really amazing because, you know, you think, well, boy, people, aren't they invested in their own company? Don't they want to see things going well? But I think we get so siloed and we're saying, hey, if they're going to keep doing that, that's, you know, that saves me. I'll check that first every time. And, you know, I can check off that I work for two days and solve that problem again. I think you, that's the word I use all the time is silos. We need to project management to force people out of their silos and force us to work together in a collaborative way. 
Because if we don't, we do a lot of work with for-profit companies, obviously, but also nonprofits, but most of it's for for-profit companies. And I always make the argument. So one of the anecdotal things that I notice is when I'm working with a team or teaching the class, all the engineers come and sit together on one side of the room because they speak the same language. They all think the same jokes are funny. They all get it, right? They all have the shared burden of having taken calculus in college, which was a scar on us all. And then the next group that comes in is usually the IT people. And they'll kind of sit close to the engineers because they kind of speak the same language. But both groups want to sit as far away as possible from the marketing people. And the reason is, as an engineer, I don't speak marketing and that makes me uncomfortable. And so I usually tell this story in in my teaching classes. Again, it's a stereotype, but there's a grain of truth in it. And the story that I like to tell is, as an engineer, you marketing people, you know, so I say to the marketing person, you know, what do you actually do? When I, what I see of you, you have a lot of meetings, you eat a lot of nice lunches, you do a lot of talking, but at the end of the day, what do you really do? When I go home at night as an engineer, you can see the widget that I designed. You can see the code that I've written. I got something done today. What did you do besides have a nice lunch? And of course, the marketing person says, well, I'm sorry you have that low opinion of the value that I bring to the project team. But let's be honest, Clint, the engineer, without me giving direction to the project, you guys are so down in the weeds, you're going to fall off the cliff and run into a wall without me giving direction. And the truth is right there in the middle. Hmm. The truth is that if marketing is selling stuff we can't manufacture, we're not going to be successful. If we're building things marketing can't sell, we're not going to be successful. So we have to work in a collaborative way out of our silos to work side by side, even if I don't speak the same language, understand and recognize we have to work together on the project to be successful. Yeah, I mean, this is just uh, just powerful messaging. And, and you might say, hey, this should all be common sense. But as we've heard the old saying, common sense isn't all that common, is it? No, I like to say this is not rocket science. It's, it's not. Now, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's not complex. And the reason I say it's not easy, it's not complex is we're not doing differential equations, but it's not easy because you're dealing with people. And that's what makes it difficult is the people side and the personality side of things. So, Clint, I'm planning after we finish to check out the website. And the website is really a pretty simple one, simply projectsuccess.com. If I go to the website, will I find a link there to the podcast called The Conversation? You will. Yes. You'll see it there or you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Good deal. Projectsuccess.com. Clint Padgett, he's the president and CEO of Project Success. He'll be back for our final segment right after this. I'm Dr. DeRose. Stay tuned. Don't miss as we wind things up with Clint Padgett on today's edition. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. If child abuse victims don't get counseling or help, they so often become abusers themselves. The victim doesn't make the decisions... They just take the orders. I got help, and so can you. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Shelley Flace with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. If you own firearms, it's your responsibility to make sure they're always stored safely. Hiding them in a closet or drawer is not enough. Kids know where they are. 
Research shows the risk of injury and death is lower if guns are stored unloaded and locked up with the ammunition locked in a separate place. This is important when children are young as well as when they grow into teenagers. For more, talk with your pediatrician or visit HealthyChildren.org. So I wanted to talk with you and your mom today, Lily, because some people at school have noticed changes going on with you, and we're concerned. Like what? Who? Some of your friends, teachers. It sounds like you've lost interest in a lot of things lately. You're hanging with new friends? So? So, individually, maybe those things are no big deal. But taken together, and then the incident the other day, you were with Derek when he was caught selling marijuana. Yeah, he was selling it. Honey, we know. But we care about you and, and want to know what's going on. That's right. We just want to understand better and see how we might help. And if weed is a part of it, we just want to make sure you understand the negative consequences for someone your age. The physical and mental health effects, the poor decision-making, and the confusing legal aspects these days. So what do you say? Can we talk? For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back for our final segment of today's show. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Clint Padgett has been with me from the top of the hour. Clint, I'm so glad that you've stayed by. My pleasure. Clint. Now, this may sound like a crazy question, but I'm looking at my family. I've got four siblings, and all of us have been pretty active in administrative things as well as in other domains. But I think the only one of my siblings that has actually carried the title of project manager is a brother who's an engineer. So do you have to be an engineer to be a project manager? That's the silly question. It's actually not a silly question, and the answer is definitely no. You do not have to be an engineer. You have to have enough knowledge about the topic to be able to say that doesn't make sense, mm -hmm. but that's intelligence. That's not your training background. Other than that, it's about what do we need to do to be successful? How do we work with people? The people skills are much more important than your training background, because even though I came from an engineering background, that's not, that doesn't play every day with my role as a project manager or as a leader at all. Now, I've noticed uh, my brother's in the you know construction, telecommunications sector, so obviously they're talking about projects. When you go to different entities, maybe you're talking about a tribal entity, maybe they're involved with anything from gaming to transportation to recreation. I mean, I can think of pharmaceuticals. I, I know so many different tribal entities uh, over the years that have been involved with so many different things. But a lot of times they may not use the language in some of those industries of having a project and a project manager. So what kind of roles would be encompassed in this function in organizations that don't say, hey, we're doing this project today and this other project next week and we're bidding for that project next month? Yeah, so you can use whatever terminology you need to. It's really a semantics, but you have a team leader. Uh, so they have to be called project manager, which brings up an interesting topic because we do work globally. And in some cultures, in some countries, title manager means you get more money. And so that's a no-no. We can't call them project managers. We have to call them team leaders. But it's really just semantics. And so it's, it's really about leadership skills. 
And do you have enough understanding about the topic to just to be able to say, that doesn't make sense. Can we dig in that a little deeper? And sometimes it's there to protect the team member, because a lot of times, you know, one of the questions we often get in project management world is there's a term called sandbagging. And with sandbagging, somebody is telling you they need more time than they actually do to give themselves a buffer. And so that's definitely a problem, but we find it to be much more a problem is the person who gives himself not enough time. They're overly optimistic. Mm. And so our job as a, the leader in that group is to say, listen, I don't think you gave yourself long enough. Let's talk about what's really involved in that. And let me just remind you, this is, you're not just working on this one thing, you're working on multiple things. So you have to have those kind of skill sets. It's not about a training background or being an engineer. And to be honest with you, there are some engineers that are terrible project managers because they end up liking the work, doing the complex technical stuff, and they don't really like dealing with the people. Mm -hmm. And then, so they, they still are named the project manager, but they're not really managing the project. So it really doesn't matter your background, as long as you've got some people skills and you've got enough innate knowledge to be able to say, that doesn't make sense. Can we talk through it? So while we're speaking about this topic, do you ever go into an organization and you say, you don't have people doing the basic project management. You need to assign someone to that role. Is that a scenario you see? Sure. We come in some organizations and do audits and assessments, and we look at their strengths and weaknesses. And one of them might be that you don't have named project managers, that you're just trying to manage it as a group. And that doesn't really work. And what we find realistically is if nobody's in charge, if nobody's named to be in charge, somebody usually ends up taking over, you know? And so let's just go ahead and call that what they are. They're the project manager. And then of course, we can also help that project manager get better at doing the things that they need to do well. So you mentioned working some with nonprofits as well, and, and we have many listeners who are part of that world. So in a nonprofit world, a lot of times, at least the organizations I've dealt with, a lot of volunteerism and things of that nature. How do you work with people who are volunteers? Are there some unique challenges there? There are unique challenges in that you have even less authority. I mentioned earlier in a matrix, you don't have the authority or the people on the team. And certainly with volunteer organization, you have even less, right? You're relying on them. But that makes the accountability piece that much more important. And what that means is I need to make them feel accountable to the project. And we do that through having them build their plan for their project. So they feel accountable. They are the ones telling you, hey, that's my task, put my name on it. Give me five days and I'll get it done. If Joe is done with his activity and Jill's done with her activity, it'll take me five days to finish my task. By doing these things, they feel accountable and they feel a connection and they're going to help themselves, hold themselves more accountable, even if it is in a nonprofit volunteer kind of an environment. Okay. So let's talk about one other, I think, you know, very important thing in this whole dialogue. And that is, you know, what happens when everyone's come together, they've all agreed on something and it seems like collectively they don't have the success story that we've been talking about. You know, we've said, hey, invest this time, do this, X, Y, and Z, you can have great results. What if things happen outside of their control and it looks like a big failure? So that's a great question. And one of the things we have to make sure people understand is project plans are not cast in stone. You don't plan it on day one and it never changes. Life happens. Things are going to happen. 10 months ago, nobody knew about a pandemic. You know, nobody knew that you've got a facility that the factory just burned the ground out in Oregon, right? These things are going to happen. Projects are not statics. What that means is every two weeks we get back together and say, all right, we have our plan, which is fantastic, but what's changed? What do we know today? We didn't know two weeks ago. Let's build that into the plan. Oh, the supplier that was going to deliver to us next week just burned to the ground. Okay, we need to plan for the alternative. What is the alternative? And that alternative may be that we have to push the project out. 
because we simply can't get it done now. I remember working on a project early in my career where we were doing a, this, what's called a prove design machine, where you build all these one-off pieces and you put them all together to prove out your design. And it's a four-pass process. There's a proof design that you go through. And then based on the learnings, you build some pilot machine, uh, prototype machines. Then you build some pilots and eventually you go to production. Mm-hmm. And the tractor trailer truck delivering our one-of-a-kind transmission in the world for our proof design machine, jackknifed, the transmission rolled off and got destroyed. No way. So you didn't plan for that. There was no way you saw that coming. Uh-huh. We got the team back together and said, what's the impact of this change? And we, we did two, two approaches. We had one team that went out to the crash site swept everything up and see if we could glue it all back together and make it work for our test. Uh-huh. We didn't think that was going to work. So we had a second team who went out and said, let's look at the universe of transmissions. And is there one close enough to this one that we could make it work? Hmm. Both of those failed. Wow. So we went back to management and said to management, listen, you know, we had a problem with the transmission and this is an, this is a farming application. So when the farming, you have a, a selling season, if you're going to miss that selling season, you need to move the schedule anyway. Mm-hmm. We said we'd like to move the date, the deadline by a year so we can rebuild this transmission. And of course, management being very understanding said, absolutely not. The date is the date. Uh-huh. My least favorite phrase in project management, they said, make it happen. So we go back and we're beating our heads against the wall. And I wish I could say that it was me that had this brilliant idea, but it was not. Someone on the team had the epiphany that, you know, we could still make it work if we go from a four-phase process to a three-phase process. Huh. If we drop one of those iterations, we can make it work. So we figured out what the best one to drop was, the additional risk we would have to take on in doing so, went back to the internal customer and said, we'd still rather you just move the date, but if you can't, here's how we can do it, but you have to agree to take on these additional risks. So you have to keep in mind, it's not a static thing. You're going to constantly be coming back. That example I just gave was an extreme example, but there are smaller versions of that every single project that are going to happen. So it's not just an investment on the front end. It's not just saying, hey, we got to sit down, we got to plan this out. But there has got to be mid-course corrections frequently. There has to be time to interact. And it's not overly obtrusive. What we typically recommend is it's one hour a week or one hour every other week. And that's for a specific project? Per project. So if I'm working on five projects, I should plan on five hours a week or five hours every other week? We probably go every other week at that point. Okay. Yeah. If you got that much on your plate, huh? Yeah. Wow. This is just a lot of great stuff, Clint. I know many folks have been with us from the beginning of the hour. They've jotted down, hopefully they haven't been driving while they've been taking notes, but they've jotted down Project Success and ProjectSuccess.com is the single best place to go if I want to tap into more of your wisdom, more of your insights, right? Absolutely. My email address is on there as well. Feel free to email me. Okay. So, One more time, for those who haven't caught the whole dialogue, you've got a couple of books, you've got a podcast. Just walk us through all that as we we kind of summarize what kind of resources I can find or my listeners can find at projectsuccess.com. Yep. We have one book that's still out there on Amazon from 2009 called The Project Success Method. We have a new one coming out at the beginning of the year called How Teams Triumph. If you go to projectsuccess.com, you can find the, both of those available. You can also find some internal resources on our website of the Shift the Worry Curve and the Agile versus Waterfall versus PSM paper. And then, of course, you can have access to the podcast, The Conversation with Clinton and Paget. You know, I just got to tell you this, Clinton. A lot of folks have said, boy, this is some encouraging stuff. Where do I go from here? Do you want to give just, you know, kind of something that encapsulates a, kind of a charge, a call to anyone listening who this stuff resonated with? Yeah, so I think that one thing I would just mention is don't let your 
I didn't let my background define me. So I grew up in rural South Carolina, a small town, spent a lot of my lifetime with my family inside of a trailer. So from there, I was able to, to go to college and don't let your background define it. It's about find the resources you need, have your vision, and then find your, your North Star vision and strive for it. Powerful stuff. Clint Paget. thank you so much. And thank you, all of you who've tuned into our show today. As always, I'm Dr. David DeRose, wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.